0: Welcome to episode 272 of the Deep Christian podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to talk about the coming of Christ. Let's dive in. Well, as of the release of this recording of this episode, we just celebrated Christmas. Now, regardless of whether or not you celebrated the holiday, I love focusing in this season, just delighting and focusing and singing about Jesus Christ in a very special way. Now, we should be doing that all year long, but there's just something special about this season. Well, I decided to be kind of fun. I was able to preach at the church at Ellerslie since Eric was out of town, and I was able to preach a Quote unquote, a Christmas message. Now, I know we're at now after Christmas, but I want to go back and I want to focus on one specific character by the name of Simeon, as recorded in Luke chapter 2. But I don't want to just merely talk about the first coming of Christ. I really want us to be expectant for his second coming. I think this will actually tie in really well with the last episode as we talked about the return of the king, but also in just the season of Christmas, meditating afresh upon the advent, both the first and the second coming of Christ. So what I thought I would do is I would just play you that sermon that I was able to preach. So this is going to be a little bit longer than a normal episode, but I hope it'll just be an enrichment and blessing to you. So let's dive in. This is called the coming of Christ. Uh, Well, Luke chapter two, Uh, I want to dive into this passage. I've been just pondering this week about what does it look like to prepare ourselves uh, for the coming of the king, what, what does it look like just to have an expectancy and a readiness uh, for just the season in which, in which we were in? And I was really pondering uh, a couple of the Christmas, Christmas characters that we don't typically focus on. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about Christmas, we obviously talk about Mary and Joseph. Hopefully we're talking about Jesus, because <laughs> that's important. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we talk about Mary and Joseph, we, we talk about the shepherds, we talk about wise men, uh, even though they were probably a few years after this. Uh, You know, we talk about, you know, the sheep and the donkeys and the, you know, whatever the animals would have been in the stable. Uh, But there's a couple of characters that we tend to forget about, and I really just want to highlight one of them for us this morning. This is in Luke chapter 2, and if you don't have your Bibles, I have it on the screen. Uh, But Luke chapter 2, verse uh, 25, down through 32. Uh, This is right after Jesus was born, and uh, eight days have passed. They're bringing Jesus into the temple. Uh, to be circumcised and and for the dedication stuff. And, And this is what Luke records. He says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, Then he, Simeon, took Jesus into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Uh, It's really interesting in this passage, uh, there's several things going on, but the next story right after this is the story of Anna. Uh, Anna is this widow. She's been in the temple. She's, she's in her 80s. And she comes in and sees Jesus, the Messiah. And she just starts to declare, she starts to praise, and she starts to uh, just declare the wonders of the fact that he is the Messiah. And, and it's interesting that you have this interesting parallel between Simeon and this guy named Anna. And they're both given a declaration, both giving an eyewitness, if you will, uh, which I think is significant because Deuteronomy says uh, you need two witnesses. And so you have, in Luke's recording, you have these two witnesses bringing forth this declaration that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, even though nobody else recognizes him. Uh, So here's this man, uh, Simeon, his name means, think about this, his name means to hear or to be heard or a commune reputation. And why I think that's even interesting is that in the passage, isn't it fascinating that it's like Luke downplays who this guy is. We don't know his credentials. Uh, we, don't, we don't know his, what he does. Uh, what we do know in the passage, though, is that three times the Holy Spirit has spoken to him. Uh, and, and the way that Luke records this, the Holy Spirit has brought him to the temple to fulfill that which the Holy Spirit has spoken to him, saying, hey, you, before you die, you will see the Messiah. And so in this expectancy, in this anticipation, here is Simeon coming down. He's listening to the Holy Spirit and following the lead of the Holy Spirit, which, again, I think is just fascinating because his name means to listen or to hear. Uh, so, again, Luke focuses more on Simeon's character than his credentials. Uh, Anna, uh, in the next section, uh, Luke actually spends a little bit more time developing who she is and, and the fact that she spent all this time in the temple and all this, all this kind of stuff— But it's interesting, he strips all of that away when it comes to Simeon. And again, Luke records three times that he was led by the Spirit. So listen to this thought. I just think this is interesting. So despite being righteous and devout to the law, which we'll look at here in a second, it wasn't Simeon's religious rigor or piety that allowed him to see Jesus. Rather, he was led by the Spirit to see and confess Christ. Isn't it interesting that when it comes to Jesus, you can be incredibly religious. You can have all the head knowledge stuff and still miss Jesus. How how is Jesus revealed to us? By the Spirit. Uh, uh, Jesus said in John 16 that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, that he leads us, that he reveals and showcases and glorifies Jesus Christ. So it's not through religious activity. It's not through uh, study. It's not through apprehension of information. It's not because I'm a good Jew keeping all the law. How, How is Jesus as the Messiah revealed to us? The Holy Spirit. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And that's encouraging because that means you could be dumber than a rock and still get in on this. Isn't that encouraging for like three of us in here? We won't say which ones, but that's encouraging. And in other words, you don't don't have to have all the smarts. And yet you you can have Jesus revealed to you. Why? Because as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And I just think that's, I think it's absolutely amazing. So as you come to this passage then and you're you're looking at this, I, I want us to look at three aspects this morning, of what you just see in the life of Simeon and the fact that he is ready and prepared for the coming of the Messiah. So let me just walk through those. Number one is this idea of the sight of salvation. It it says that when Simeon saw Jesus, he thanked and praised and worshipped God, blessed God, and then he said this, For my eyes have seen your salvation. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? that here is Simeon, he looks at Jesus, and he knows that the, and and we don't know any of the backstory. but apparently sometime in Simeon's history, the Holy Spirit revealed to him, before you die, you will see the Messiah. And everyone in this culture was waiting for the Messiah. Everyone was anticipating the coming of the king. Everyone was longing for this restoration, this comfort of Israel. And yet Simeon knew before he died, he would see the Messiah. And the moment that he sees this little babe He blesses God and says, oh, my eyes have seen your salvation. And there's a wonderful prophetic declaration in that because we know that Jesus is the one that brings salvation. And yet there is this fun play on words, even in the passage, because just the fact that he's saying, my eyes have seen your salvation, do you you know who he's talking about? Well, Jesus, obviously. But do you know what the name Jesus means? And we've gone through this so many times. But the name of Jesus, Yeshua, that name is the name God, right? Jehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh, plus the verb of to save or salvation. So the name Jesus means Jehovah or Yahweh saves. Yahweh is our salvation. He's the one that brings this thing about. So think about this. Simeon comes down to the temple, by, by being led by the Holy Spirit. He sees Jesus, whose name means Yahweh is our salvation. And he lifts up the little baby, blesses God, and says, Now I have seen your, Yahweh's, salvation. Now I've seen Jesus. Isn't that a fun play on words? It's like this fun little flip, if you will, of the passage, where he's not just saying, God, I've seen your salvation. He's saying, God, I'm seeing you, because you are my salvation. And I think it's just a beautiful portrayal of this whole thing. Uh, Listen, Matthew chapter 1 in giving the name of Jesus, right, Gabriel, Gabriel is talking to Mary, and this is what she is told, uh, or what is said about Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins, right? So it's not just this great name of he's going to bring salvation, it's that even in the name Jesus, his name means God's going to bring salvation, or that he is our salvation, Uh, You have that same idea in Luke chapter 2, when the angel goes to the shepherds. And the angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who is the Messiah. Well, who is he? He's salvation. So here is this little babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, and when you, oh, dear shepherd, see him, you're going to realize that he is your salvation. That, that he is, and it's not just he's going to do a work called salvation. He's not going to have a salvific work. That's true. But even in the very essence of his nature and his character, he is salvation itself. Which I just think is beautiful. And somehow Simeon sees all of this in a little babe down at the temple. And he sees this sight of salvation in this little bundle in Mary's arms. I just think is phenomenal. So could it be that this season, as we come in, could we not forget the fact, as we're singing our songs and we're drinking eggnog and we're having our sugar cookies more, more than we probably should be eating, uh, in the midst of all of that, could we, could we not forget the fact that the one in whom we are gazing upon, the one in which we are worshiping, is our salvation? And I, I know that we typically save that for, like, Resurrection Sunday— But do you realize the whole purpose of him coming was to bring about the fact or bring about the reality of salvation itself? So this season, could I encourage us, like Simeon, that when we behold the king, to see salvation himself. Not just something that he does, but to see the fact that he is our salvation. There's another idea in the whole Simeon passage, and it comes from the end of what he says as he's praising and worshiping God, He talks about this idea of being a light, that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. It's an interesting statement. Let me just read read it to us again. But in Luke chapter 2, it says, uh, this is when Simeon blesses God. He says, Now, Master, or Lord, you are releasing your servant or your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon, think about this. Simeon somehow sees the reality of the redemptive work that Jesus is going to do, and he realizes that this is not just for us, the Jews. Do you realize the Jews missed that when Jesus was was doing his ministry? Because over and over and over again, The Jews, the mindset, the cultural mindset of the of of Israel was that when the Messiah would come, the Messiah was for us. In fact, I think I've said this so many times to y'all, but there was that idea uh, that that the Jews' mindset of the Gentiles was that the only reason God created the Gentiles, right? And and by the way, we are the Gentiles. (laughs) But the only reason why God created the Gentiles was because the Gentiles were going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> and so the Jews had this weird twist of, of the blessing idea, and they says, well, God has blessed us, and everyone else can just, psst, just go to hell. Uh, and that, that was the mindset. That, 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 that was the only purpose of, of the Gentiles, was, was fuel for hell. And yet Simeon, here he is, this good, righteous, devout Jew who looks at this little baby and says, oh, this is the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament and those promises and those declarations of the Old Testament that this wasn't just for us Jews, this is actually for all the world. That is seen in that little baby. And he's quoting an Old Testament passage saying that Jesus is a light of revelation, that he is going to be the thing that illuminates, the thing that gives clarity, the thing that awakens the Gentiles to the truth. That somehow that he is the light that in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our blindness, is going to reveal our hope as Gentiles, which is Jesus. That, that he is that light, that he is going to bring about that revelation of himself, of that gospel of himself. Uh, let me just give you the Old Testament passages. This light for the revelation of Gentiles is based on a few Old Testament prophecies, specifically in Isaiah. But in Isaiah 9-2, Isaiah records, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine upon them. He says in Isaiah 49, verse 6, uh, this is God speaking about the coming Messiah. He says, I will also give you as a light, he's speaking to the Messiah. He saying, like, I'm going to give you as the Messiah, I'm going to give you as a light, not to the Jews, but to the nations, so that my salvation, isn't that interesting, may reach to the ends of the earth. So Messiah, whose name is salvation, you are going to be a light to bring about salvation to all the nations. is that a great thought? And somehow Simeon, obviously awakened and, and revealed by the Holy Spirit, he's looking at this little baby and he says, oh, do you know what this little baby is? This baby is the light. This is that revelation that, that, the, that the old prophets pronounce This is the light that's going to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Uh, You know this passage well, but John chapter 1. uh, John is recording the coming of Christ, and this is what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and get this. And that life, Jesus, was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not or cannot overtake it. That here is Jesus. What is he? He's a light. And not just light to a specific group of people, he is light to all the nations. Uh, There's this great passage in Genesis chapter 12. God has called Abraham to come out from the people and come out from his land and come out from the culture and go to a place that I'm going to show you. And so Abraham obeys and by faith walks and follows God, ends up in the promised land. And it's interesting that in the calling of God upon Abraham's life, this was the pronouncement. And, and we brought this up, I don't know, countless times probably. Uh, and Sandy has done a whole study on this, if you ever want to go through it. But but it's that idea that this becomes kind of the bedrock or the foundation of Scripture where what happens in Genesis chapter 12 becomes a central theme through which all the rest of Scripture is going to keep pointing back to. In other words, you can start working through the prophecies. Uh, you can start working through the histories. Uh, as you work through the New Testament, especially the epistles, what you see is this echoing language of going back to Genesis chapter 12. And so, again, here, here is sin that has entered the land. God is going to choose one people, this man by the name of Abraham and Sarah, And through them, going to bring about the redemption, the salvation, the light for all the nations. And listen to what God tells Abraham. He says, Go forth from your land, and from your kin, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed." Now again, by the time you get to Jesus, the Jews have taken this passage and turned it so inwardly focused that they've said, all right, uh, we are blessed, praise the Lord, we have all this stuff in Abraham, and therefore we are God's chosen, everyone else, pst, fuel for hell. And yet, do you, do you hear what God's actually telling Abraham? That it is through this line of Abraham that he's actually going to bring such a blessing that when all the world sees what God is doing through this one people group, the entire world will be stirred to say, I need that God. That whatever it is that I've been holding onto to all, all this time, I need to set that aside and embrace the reality of this God of, of Israel. And what you begin to see, you see hints of this, like Rahab and Ruth, who are the Gentiles who come into the fold of Israel. But we know that this passage ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That what you see is that the blessing of Abraham is Jesus. And that in Abraham, in, in his loins, in Christ, all the families of earth will be blessed. Why? Because he is that salvation from that Adamic sinful nature that we all have. So think about what Simeon's saying then. Simeon is, is looking back at the Old Testament prophecies. He's a good, righteous, devout Jew. He, he knows the word. And he's looking at the Old Testament and he's saying, Wow, right in front of me is this little baby that is, is fulfilling the very thing that God commanded Abraham that, that God gave Abraham as a blessing. He, he's fulfilling these prophecies that through this one little baby all the families on earth are going to receive light. They're going to receive salvation and therefore they're going to receive the blessing. That there is hope. That you don't have to keep living in the junk any longer. Wouldn't it be neat if we had that concept in our lives this Christmas? That we are going to realize that he, yes, he is that side of salvation but then he is that light of hope. I, I love what Paul says in the book of Ephesus, I had to bring it up at some point, uh, but in Ephesians 3, verse 4 through 9, uh, listen to what Paul says in terms of his calling. Uh, He talks about, he says, my insight into the mystery of Christ. So in other words, there is this mystery that God has given us, and that mystery is in Christ. Uh, Paul tells us in Colossians that this mystery has been hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed. So there's this thing that's been hidden all the way back from you know before genesis chapter 1 verse 1 that there there's a purpose and a plan. Uh, Paul calls it God's eternal purpose. So there's this mystery of Christ which Paul says in in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it was now revealed to his holy holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Well well what's the mystery? Paul says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what is the grand mystery? Woo! We get in. That we are no longer on the outside. We get to be on the inside. And we're not just on the outside looking in at what God is doing with his people called Israel. Now we get to share and inherit the very promises of God. That we actually get to be partakers of that divine nature. We get to actually share in the very life And all that God was doing through this people called Israel, we now get to participate in that. Yeah, we are grafted in. We are not natural branches, as Paul tells the Romans. But we now share in that same life. And Paul goes on to say, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for all what is the administration of this mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God and created all things. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, I actually get the privilege as a Jew to be the mouthpiece to go into the Gentile world and declare of that light, of that wondrous mystery, which is Christ in you, that you as a Gentile get to participate in the realities of all that God is doing. And somehow, which is still such a cool mystery to me, Simeon had that insight when he saw baby Jesus, eight days old, down at the temple. And he's looking at this little baby saying, wow, not only am I seeing your salvation, oh God, but I'm realizing that he is the one that's bringing light of revelation to all the Gentiles. That he is that salvation. He is that light itself. Isn't that amazing? Just to have that insight, even before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Simeon was one quite, I mean, he's one, he's, he's quite the guy. Now, let me give you a third thought really quick. Uh, and this is kind of the whole point of the message. <laughs> the rest of it was just introduction. But I love the fact that as you come into this, into the passage, the whole undercurrent of the passage is that here is this man by the name of Simeon, uh, here, which we're not going to look at, but the woman named Anna. Both of them are living with this expectancy. Uh, you, you can't escape that in the passage. That when, when Jesus shows up, Simeon is not surprised. He's not like, wow, I never thought. He goes, amen, I've been waiting for this. In fact, the Holy Spirit told me I would see this before I died. But there was this longing, there was this expectancy. Uh, If you read Anna's story, which is at the end of chapter 2 of Luke, uh, you you see that same expectancy. Here is this old woman who has been waiting down at the temple in expectancy for the coming of her king. That there's this longing, there's this anticipation, there's this, Uh, Look at what Luke says about Simeon in Luke 2.25. Again, it says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. In other words, what Luke is recording is that that he, out out, out of all the Jews, he was doing the best he can do outside of, uh, let let me say it this way, in his own resource, in his own pockets, in the best the Old Testament can allow you to do, he was doing it well. In other words, he was living righteously. He was living in a a very godly sense. He was devout. He was fully invested. He's he's all in. And yet again, I love the fact that that's not what allowed him to see the Christ. It was the Holy Spirit. But then listen to this. So he is a righteous and devout man, but he was waiting for the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Uh, Some some of your translations may say the consolation of Israel. Uh, But that phrase, comfort of Israel, or the consolation of Israel— was a slang term in jesus day to refer to the messiah in other words the idea was is that who is the comfort of israel who is going to bring the consolation to israel Well, it was the messiah again the the idea was that rome had taken over the known world and here we are we're waiting for this redemption and the cultural mindset is that when the messiah would show up the messiah is going to march down kick caesar off the throne set up uh, Israel as its own little nation in the glory days of David and Solomon. Praise the Lord. And so there is this hope, there is this longing of, of his day that, okay, when the Messiah comes, he is going to bring comfort. He's going to bring a consolation to all of our problems. And yet it's interesting in the passage, it says not that he was hopeful of a, of a comfort or a consolation, but that he was eagerly expectant of it. He was awaiting that comfort. Do you see the difference? In other words, most Jews of his day had a hope for the comfort of Israel. They had a hope, a desire, that God would bring about a consolation. But that's very different than awaiting the hope. Uh, Maybe as an illustration. Uh, I am very hopeful that you are going to give me a $100 bill. Today, preferably. (laughs) Yes, I'm very hopeful of that. And it's almost like, and, and the way you're looking at me, it's like, that's a dream, buddy. That's a dream. Exactly. It's a hope. That's very different than if I went up to you and I says, I am awaiting my $100. Meaning, if you don't have it in cash, I'll take a check. Cash app. Whatever you, whatever you got. I'm waiting for it. In other words, I'm not letting you go until you put that money in my hand. There's a different posture if you just merely hope, versus you are expectant, versus awaiting. They're very similar, but I think there's a, there's a distinction. Because again, most people in, in Simeon's day were hopeful that there was a comfort coming. They were hopeful. They were hoping that God would bring about a consolation. But he wasn't just merely hopeful. He was like on the edge of his seat with expectancy that it was coming, he knew without a doubt that God was going to bring the restoration, the comfort, the consolation in his lifetime. So Simeon is not described as hoping, but awaiting. And I think that's a really significant difference in the passage. Let me maybe turn the gaze if if I can and talk about our day and age. Simeon was awaiting for the hope or, or the, the consolation. That he went beyond the hope and had an, an expectancy for the coming of, of Christ, the Messiah. That he knew that in his lifetime, he, he had no doubt, because the Spirit revealed it to him, that the Messiah was going to come. Do you realize that we have that same privilege in our day and age? Because though he was waiting for the first coming, we have the opportunity to await his second coming. And I love, I love this season because even more than the advent of Christ's first coming, which is really important, we need to celebrate that. And by the way, likely it was not on December 25th. Okay, that's the day we chose to celebrate it. Yes, it was a pagan day, but we're rewriting the paganism and we're celebrating it anyway. <laughs> you don't have to, but I'm going to have some ice cream on that day. Uh, Jesus was likely born during Hanukkah. There's some good indication, the Festival of Lights, which, by the way, starts tonight. Uh, regardless of when he was actually born, right? Some, some scholars say he was probably born in the fall sometime. Whenever he actually was, the fact that we're celebrating his birth, I think, is important. We're celebrating the coming of that king. And yet, I don't think we should just merely celebrate the first coming of the king. It's a reminder of the fact that that king is returning. And one of the things I love about this season is the fact that as I'm singing Christmas songs about the advent of his coming— I'm also reinterpreting that to say, oh, but Lord, you have promised that you are returning again. Now, he may or may not come in my lifetime. I mean, the way things are heading, (laughs) I hope he does. (laughs) You know, because things just seem to be lining up more and more. But hey, for 2,000 years, everyone assumed that that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. I mean, Peter and Paul, as you read their epistles, presumed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. And it wasn't until the end of their life they're like, Maybe he's not coming in our lifetime. Maybe you'll have to keep waiting. And, and that's true about our day. He likely could come in our, in our lifetime. I mean, Israel finally is back as a nation, and, and we won't go through the prophetic stuff. But, but you realize that things, things are coming to a head. This is exciting. Hello? It's not something to be scared about. This is like the most exciting point in human history is what we're entering into. And we could be that generation. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? Oh, that would be so phenomenal. (laughs) Oh, I just love the thought. Wish you would get excited. Regardless of whether it's in our lifetime or not, just as Simeon was expectant for the coming of the king, do you realize we should be expectant for the coming of the king? That we shouldn't just be merely hopeful. We should be awaiting. We should be expectant. We should be longing. We should be anticipating because he is coming. Well, when is he coming? I don't know. But that actually doesn't matter. I'm awaiting his return. I'm not hoping for a return. I am awaiting his return. And there's a difference. So are you expectant and awaiting for his return? Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy. This is the last uh, letter that Paul wrote Timothy. This is right before his death in Rome. And Paul said this to young Timothy. He said, in the future... There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, think about this, that there's this, as he says, this crown of righteousness that the righteous judge is going to bestow upon me. But not just on me, but upon everyone who has loved his appearing. Uh, This is how the New Living translates it. Who eagerly looks forward to his appearing. There is something in Scripture that demands that we are not passive about his coming. That was true about the first coming, that they weren't supposed to be passive. They were supposed to be longing and anticipating that. In fact, you remember the scene when Jesus was coming into into Jerusalem on the donkey. He's he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking at Jerusalem, and he starts to to lament. Jerusalem! Jerusalem! Had you known this was your day? You would have been ready for me, and he's lamenting the fact that they're not ready. Well, how would they have known? Well, Daniel prophesied that he was going to come in, that the Messiah was going to appear and enter into Jerusalem. And it's interesting if you measure out the, the prophecy in Daniel. Do you know what day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem? On the very day that Daniel prophesied it. I mean, the day, not the year. The day. Isn't that awesome. And yet, what do you see Jerusalem doing? They're being passive. That they're, that they're just hoping that the Messiah might do something. And they weren't awaiting for the fullness of the Messiah. When it comes to the second coming, do you realize that we are not called to be passive? We're not called just to sit back and, and be lazy and just be like, well, Lord, you can come whenever you want to come. And In fact, you want to pause because there's some things I need to get done before you return. Because you know, if, you, if you're single, you want to be married. If you're married, you want to have kids right? If you have kids, you want to get them out of the house or whatever, right? So I'm, that's what my parents always told me. So i was just kidding. That's not true. That's not true. Mom, that's not true. Uh, but but you, you realize that there, there's sometimes, there's, you know, we, places we want to go, things we want to see, and we're like, Lord, could you just wait a little bit longer? But we are supposed to be awaiting. We should be longing for his return. We should be eagerly expecting his return, We should be actually willing to say, Lord, come this instant. I will throw off everything, all my plans, all my hopes, all my dreams, if you could just return. I mean, if we actually knew our king, we would be begging for him to return this moment. And I think one of the reasons we're so passive or one of the reasons we're so undesirous for him to return is because we actually don't know him well enough. Because if we didn't know him so intimately, so deeply, we would be longing for his return. Just like that engaged couple, you know, who are in la la land, because all they can think about is each other, and and one say is on the other side of the country. But there is such a burn and a longing within them, just to see each other's faces. At least that's how Hallmark always portrays it, right? So that there, that there should be this, there should be this desire, there should be this longing for our King, if we actually knew him well. Titus. Uh, this is what Paul tell, told, told him in Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, uh, verse 11 through 14. Uh, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Think about this. That in the current age in which we live, we are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. And then Paul says, looking for the blessed hope. Oh, isn't that awesome? We are to be looking, anticipating, longing for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. What are we to be, what are we to be doing? We are to be longing and anticipating for his appearing, that blessed hope, because that is our hope. So that being said, I just want to give you a short list of things scripture tells us that we are to be doing in anticipation of his return. And again, this is a Christmas message, because we are talking about his first coming. But I don't want us to get so focused on the first coming and the celebration of the first coming and miss the fact that we are to be longing and anticipating the second coming. And just as Simeon was seeing Jesus as the salvation for all people and the light to the Gentiles and was eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah, do you realize we should be doing that in our day? That we should just be like bouncing up and down with just, oh, Lord, come, Lord, come, Lord, come. But we're not supposed to be passive. There's an engagement that our lives are are supposed to have. Well, what does Scripture say? Here's just a short list. This is not a complete list. This is just a short list. Let me just give you a bunch of passages. Uh, In Matthew 24, verse 44, we are told to be ready and watching. Uh, Jesus says, for this reason, you all must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not think he will. Well, if we don't know when he's coming, that means we need to be ready, watchful, anticipating, never taken off guard. Uh, We're to obey God's word, as Revelation 22, 7 says. Jesus says this, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That there's something about the fact that he is coming soon. And as such, we need to keep his word. We need to obey. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, there's just Jesus is talking uh, about prayer and about how we should praise, showing the disciples how to pray. And he says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you realize we should still be praying for that? That, that we should be longing for the kingdom of God, the fullness of his kingdom to be evident. On, on Earth. Now we understand that that won't come into the fullest expression until Jesus returns and sets all things right. But we should be praying that why Because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. We should be praying for His kingdom to come. And we should be proclaiming the gospel. Romans 11:25 tells us by Paul, "For I do not want you brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles have come in. It's interesting. Paul says, until the Gentiles have heard the gospel, Jesus is not going to return. So then what should we be doing? We should be proclaiming the gospel. Right? And there is this idea that when, he, when, when all the nations know, when all the tongues have heard him, that apparently is setting the stage for him to return. And by the last date I've heard, uh, it is 2027. It is estimated by 2027 that every people group in this world will at least have heard the gospel in their language. Isn't that an exciting thought? This is the first time in human history that every people group in their language will have heard the gospel in their language. It could be in our lifetime. Please, contain your excitement. Stay seated. But we should be proclaiming the gospel, right? Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 2, there's this idea of focus. We're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That, that, that he should be our focus. Don't get lost in in-times eschatology stuff. Yeah, you should probably study in-times, but if you make that your focus, you get weird. Amen. <laughs> you know? uh, if you, if you want to you know, focus on giants in Scripture, you actually get really weird. If you want to, and we talk about this here all the time, it's all about Christ. It's about the centrality of Jesus Christ. So what should we be doing in this, in this state? Yes, you should be studying. Yes, you should be learning. But let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He should be the, the primacy. He should be the focus. He, he is the preeminent one. He should have first place in our lives, in our minds, in our study. So let us fix our eyes on him. Uh, in Revelation 2.10, we're told to be faithful. Jesus is talking to the church at Smyrna, and he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, I understand this has a very specific context, Jesus is talking to a very specific church, but the principle is still the same, that until I return, be faithful. Don't be pushed around. Live the life you're called to live. I were called to be fruitful. Luke chapter 19, it says, now while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So they're thinking the whole restoration, the whole consolation is going to be fulfilled in in its totality. And so Jesus says, "Uh, let me tell you something. And he gives them this little parable. He says, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then returned. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come back. So he's currently gone, Jesus. When he returns, what should we be doing in the meantime? Engaging in business. David Coleman's excited about that, right? But hey, we should be, we should be fruitful. We, we should be engaged. We're not just sitting around watching the latest Netflix binge of whatever. We are to be fully engaged in the reality of the work of Christ. Does that make sense? That there is a business set before us. It's souls. So let's be fruitful. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 11 through 12, says that we should be holy, godly, and expectant. So Peter says this, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you, be, ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So while we are waiting, we should live holy, upright, godly lives that are expectant and anticipating and hastening the coming day of the Lord. Uh, there's that term that you probably have heard, it's Maranatha. Uh, when you look at the word Maranatha, it, it's a Hebrew phrase, but it translates as, oh Lord, come, which has weird grammar. It's like, oh Lord, come. Or you could say, come, Lord Jesus. But it's that cry of the soul that just says, Lord, hasten, Lord, come quickly. Lord, we are desperate for you. And do you realize that this has been the prayer that the Spirit and the bride has been praying for 2,000 years? They've been crying forth Maranatha. And it is a call that all of us should be taking up. And and just as the Jews in in the first century were longing and anticipating this this consolation of hope, and they were calling forth, oh God, could you come, and and would you redeem, and would you restore, and would you bring that comfort of consolation? When Jesus came, he didn't come as they thought he would. But there was, a, there was a hopefulness. Simeon had an, awaiting, uh, 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 an attitude of awaiting and expectancy for that king. And wouldn't it be neat in this generation if we had that same longing of Maranatha? Not just a mere hopefulness, but, an, uh, but a zeal of expectancy, of, of awaiting his return. We're told, again in Luke, that it says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. So the fact that the Messiah is coming does not discount the fact that you should live however you want to live. That we should still live righteous, devout, holy lives, as Peter reminded us. But he was waiting for the comfort of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Is it possible for that to be true today? That with us, with the fullness of the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost, could we live holy, upright, godly lives in this age awaiting for the fullness of the comfort of the world. Revelation 22, 17, it says that the spirit and the bride say come, and the one who hears says come. Would you have that expectancy? Would you have that longing? Again, listen to what Paul says to Titus in Titus 2.13, that we're to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I, I love this season. And it's not just because we get to celebrate the first coming of Christ. It's because in the midst of this season, it is a reminder that we should be awaiting, eagerly expectant for his return. And he is coming quickly, folks. He is returning soon. And again, whether it's in our lifetime or not, that actually doesn't matter. But what if we would have that on the edge of our seat, longing cry that just says, Maranatha, Lord, would you come? Th- that would you set all things right? And Lord, we thank you for your patience. That for two thousand years you you have been slow to return because your longing is to get as many people into your kingdom as possible. That He's merciful, that He doesn't bring immediate immediate wrath and judgment, and that is good news for all of us. By the way, <laughs> praise the Lord that He is He's kind, He is patient, He's loving. Why? So that we would repent. But in this season of waiting, could we not just waste this season? Well, let's not be passive in the season. I, I I look at the modern church, and I think too many of us. I'm talking globally, the modern church. I I think too many of us are rah 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 for everything now, and we forget that He's returning. And we're justifying a lot of stuff under the banner of the fact of like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. But what if we actually realized He is returning, and, and what if we would live in such a way that there was always an expectancy, always a longing. If I knew that Jesus could return at any moment, it would change how I probably lived. I would probably take sin far more seriously. I would take sharing the gospel far more seriously. And wouldn't it be neat in this Christmas season that we wouldn't just celebrate his first coming, but we would celebrate the coming of the king as he returns? That's my prayer for myself. That's my hope for this church. That that we would celebrate him, yes, the first, but also in the second, and isn't it a phenomenal thought that we're living in the middle of biblical history? I don't. Know if you, I just love that idea, that we're we are in the middle of this, because there is still stuff in this book that has yet to be accomplished, and we are in the middle of biblical history, awaiting for His return. And just as there was 400 years of silence before His first coming between the last of the prophets and His return, there's been 2,000 years of seeming quietness, from His first coming to His second. But folks, he is returning, and he is returning soon. So would you have a posture of Maranatha? Would you have a posture of expectancy? Would you realize that he is the salvation, our salvation itself? Would you realize that he is the light to all the Gentiles so we can celebrate him fully? Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. Thank you for the fact that you are our salvation. Thank you that you are light in a dark world. And Lord, as a Gentile, I just, man, thank you so much for not only your salvation, not only for your light, but for the privilege of partaking of your divine nature. And yes, we say it almost every week, but thank you that we have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That we don't have to look anywhere else outside of you because you are all we need. Lord, I pray that like Simeon had this anticipation, this longing, Lord, could you give us that same expectancy in our souls? Lord, I pray that we would be righteous and devout, but realize that it's not through our religious activity, it's not through our piety that we behold you, it's it's through your unveiling through the Holy Spirit in our lives that, that brings about a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself even more to us. Lord, would you guide us into all truth? Would you glorify Jesus in our lives? Would you just lift yourself up in our mind's eye in a very rich and powerful way? Lord, I pray as we come into this week, Lord, we wouldn't get lost in all the hustle and the bustle. and the, We wouldn't get lost in the beeps and the buzzes. We wouldn't get lost in the, the cultural mindset of the season. But Lord, we would fix our eyes upon you. That, that we would see this season as a celebration of your life not just your first coming, but the promise of the fact that you will return again. Lord, would you stir something within us? Would you allow us to get to know you so deeply that the cry of our heart would be Maranatha? Come, Lord Jesus, come. And Lord, may we live every day, not not just this season, but every day of the year with a longing and expectancy for your return Lord, thank you that we are your people. And thank you for a season where we get to celebrate you. We love you. your precious name we pray. Well, thank you for listening to this episode and this sermon on the Deeper Christian Podcast. If you would like to have the notes from that sermon, you can get all of that on the show notes page at deeperchristian.com forward slash 272 for episode 272. And until next time, know I'm cheering you on and praying for you as you build your life around Jesus Christ.